And tonight we look at what uh, in multiple Gospels is the beginning of Jesus' adult ministry, his public ministry out in the world. What is it that set him off into the world to begin his public ministry? Um, It was Jesus' temptation. His baptism first and then his temptation out in the wilderness. And that's what we're going to read about tonight. Uh, I, want, I, want to, I want you to think about first this. Um, I wonder what you think about superheroes. What comes to mind? What, what makes a superhero to you? Uh, how would you define one? Uh, maybe you don't care. Maybe you're tired of all the superhero movies. I don't know. Um, my favorite of the superhero movies of the last 10, 15 years has got to be uh, the last Batman trilogy. With Christian Bale. This is only the second time in three sermons that I'm bringing this trilogy up. Um, I kind of like it. But if you think about Batman as like a franchise, it's like a 75-year-old character. Um, I I think I Googled that one time and I know that. Um, And the thing about Batman, sure, he's not your traditional superhero in that he doesn't have like powers that come out of him um, supernaturally. Um, other than his supernatural wealth <laughs> that uh, buys him cool gadgets. Uh, but he is a superhero, right? Because he's, he's Batman. Um, no, 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 no. All right, never mind. Um, it's a cool theme song and everything. But, um, you know, Batman over the years has always kind of been your traditional superhero because he's Batman. He's do no wrong. He wants to fight crime, and so he goes out and he fights crime, and the bad guys always lose, and Batman always wins because he's a superhero. But what I loved about the last trilogy uh, of Batman movies that Christian Bale played Batman um, was it was different. Because in it, at least what for me, why I enjoyed the movies was that Bruce Wayne in those movies as a character was a real guy. He was a real man. He was a haunted man. He was a flawed man. He was a weak man, even when he was playing Batman, right? Uh, He made mistakes. He got in over his head. Uh, Spoiler alert, he got his back broken, right? Um, And so uh, he has all these these flaws and these these weaknesses, physical, emotional, and, and whatnot. And whereas most traditional superheroes, you know, kind of wear a mask during the day to hide their superhero identity... If you really dive deep into who Bruce Wayne is, and I'm, I promise you I'm not this much of a nerd, but maybe I am. But Bruce Wayne, Batman, was actually the mask. Batman was the mask for all that haunted Bruce Wayne. For all that ate up Bruce Wayne on the inside. Um, and I think that's why we love him for it. Jesus, when you come to Jesus, he's kind of something altogether all different. Uh, because on the one time, one, on the one hand, he's Jesus. He's the Son of God. He's flawless. He's perfect. He's holy. He's righteous in every way that any human ever could have been. He is all of it, right? But the more you read about Jesus and what the gospel writers tell us about him, he's also vulnerable and weak. He gets tired. He gets hungry. He gets sad. He gets angry. He's kind of something altogether different. And the story of Jesus' temptation, what we'll really hone in on tonight, uh, really shows us both of these in equal measure. I want to read you, before we read Luke, uh, starting in Luke 3, I want want you to hear how the author of Hebrews talks about this. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. I want you to listen to this. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, 
He is able to help those who are being tempted. Because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those that are being tempted. We're asking the question this semester, Doctor Who, who is this Jesus? And out of the gate, before he gets into all the shiny things that Jesus did in his ministry, what Luke wants to make sure that we know is that at the beginning of his public ministry, Jesus was driven out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. And there he suffered and was tempted by the devil himself for some 40 days. That's what we're reading about tonight. So read with me. Um, we're actually reading a jumble here. And, and I think there's a reason all this goes together. But uh, begin with me. Um, Luke chapter 3, starting verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, we looked at that last week, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat. And now we're going to skip forward. Uh, I know you wanted me to read all those names, but we're going to skip forward to verse 38. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam... The Son of God. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it's been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If you are the Son of God... Throw yourself down from here, for it's written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is God's word for us tonight. So I want to look at three things with you tonight concerning this passage at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. The reality of the struggle, the heart of the struggle, and and being redeemed through the struggle. Redeemed through the struggle, okay? So the first one is the reality of the struggle. And I don't know how much, one, you've either heard of Jesus' temptations or what you've ever really kind of thought of Jesus' temptations. I'm willing to bet, though, there has to be some of you in this room that have kind of thought of Jesus' temptations. You can't, maybe you knew they were in the Gospels and maybe you knew some other author in the New Testament kind of talked about it that he was tempted like us. But you probably think about the temptations in the way that like, yeah, he was tempted, right? I mean, he's Jesus, right? I mean, he's the son of God. Yeah, he was tempted. It was kind of, it was kind of just something that had to happen uh, because he was Jesus and because he was the Savior. And it was just one of those. That's kind of why it's at the beginning. Kind of had to like get it over with so he could go do the Savior thing, right? Uh, I kind of liken this to 
And for those of y'all, I've got four kids and my youngest child, three years old, uh, we actually adopted him out of foster care. Uh, and so a lot of people, when I tell them the story about fostering him and, and, and the, path, the legal pathway through all that and, until we adopted him, most people will say something to the effect, I bet, you, I bet the adoption day was so special. And I get what they're saying, and, and it was uh, the day that our whole family got to stand before a judge and he read the declaration that my son, uh, who used to be someone else, was then now uh, legally and fully Jerome Jakeith Everett, right? Um, and, and it was a special day. But the thing is, is he had already lived in our home um, for well over uh, a year and a half at that point. And so it was great and everything, but he was already my son before that day. Um, He belonged to me. I had to take care of him, right? Um, I had to repent to him. And even though he's a toddler, didn't understand what I was saying, right? When I lost my temper with him, like I've done with all my other kids, right? Um, And so there's some ways in which I look back at Adoption Day. It was just kind of that thing that had to happen. Uh, But he was really already my son before that. I think there's a danger here for us to kind of think of Jesus' temptation in that way, that he's the Savior, he's like us, and so we've got to say that he was like us, so he has to kind of, you know, go get tempted. Here's what I want you to think about. If you were asked this question on the street, I just want you to think in your head for a second, how would you answer this most naturally without thinking? How or why did Jesus resist the temptations of the devil? Think about this. How or why did Jesus resist the temptations of the devil? That's why I ask it like this. Because if you're anything like me, I think your gut reaction is to say, well, he was God, right? And I think in a, in a sense that is true. But this is, let me read to you some of the things again that the author of Hebrews says. That he was made like us. In every respect. That he might be our faithful high priest. One who represented us to God and represented God to us. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are tempted. So this is what I want you to think about. If the answer to the question, why or how did Jesus resist the temptations of the devil? If the answer to that question is only because he was God. I would suggest to you that what the author of Hebrews says about Jesus cannot be true. That if the answer, if the only answer to why Jesus was sinless and why he obeyed God instead of obeying the devil and why he was holy and righteous and perfect, right? If the only answer to that is because he was God, then I would suggest to you that he was not really like us. That's the power of the story and the reality of the struggle of this life that Jesus actually did enter into it. It's kind of hard for us to believe because it's like I've never been out in the wilderness for 40 days. I've never not eaten food for 40 days. Maybe you have. I don't know. But Jesus has been there too, if that's you. Um, but here's the thing. This is why, why I think Luke kind of puts the, the baptism, though he doesn't give as many details of Jesus' baptism, and then the genealogy, and then the temptations all together. Okay? Because think about it. Jesus has grown up now. He's just been baptized by John the Baptist. Not a Baptist, but the Baptist. Okay? Um, and, <laughs> thank you for giggling a little bit. Um, the Spirit has, the Holy, catch this, the Holy Spirit has descended onto Jesus like a dove and people saw it. Okay? And so he's now anointed by the Holy Spirit. 
And God the Father has audibly spoken and said, This is my beloved Son. This is my beloved Son. And so, if you think about it, Jesus is now up and on His way to go about this kind of, this Savior of the world thing, right? And so, what would you expect to be the next thing in the plot? Well, what is it for Jesus? Suffering. You actually read in the Gospel of Mark, when Mark tells us that Jesus was baptized, it says the Spirit immediately drove Him into the wilderness. As if there was no separation from this event of being anointed and blessed by God to be the Savior of the world. He immediately encounters suffering and temptation for over 40 days. Now why is this such a big point? Well, I wonder, I figure most of you have heard of something akin to something called the prosperity gospel. Um, And usually we think of like televangelists when we think about things like the the prosperity gospel, but I think it's much more uh, pervasive in our minds and hearts than just that. But one popular TV guy, uh, his wife, uh, Joel Osteen, his wife, Victoria Osteen, uh, you know, he's most famous for saying things like, come to Jesus and you'll experience your best life now. Things like that. He had a book titled that. Well, one time his wife, Victoria, said something to this effect. You know, when we obey God, we're not doing it for God. I mean, that's one way to look at it. We're doing it for ourselves. Just do good for your own self. Just do good because God wants you to be happy. Now, on the face of things, that sounds good. Like, God wants me to be happy. Of course He does. He loves me, right? Here's the problem. That's not what happened to Jesus. If it's not what happened to Jesus, why is, that supposed to what, what, why is that supposed to be what happens in my life if I follow this Jesus? right? Jesus was the most full of the Spirit man that has ever lived. Okay, He is God in the flesh. He was perfectly obedient to His Father's will. And by the end of His ministry, His closest friends had abandoned Him. And He was put to death on trumped up charges. And all of it was God's will for his life. But again, we usually excuse that by saying, well, yeah, but he was God, right? We live in an age of what I would call, or I would term, karmic cynicism. I made this up, and I don't even know if it's a thing. But think about it, karmic cynicism. Um, Because all of us, we all know from basic experience, right, um, that even the most spoiled among us, that life is hard, that life can be hard, uh, obviously, that's much more real for other peoples uh, in, in, our, in our lives and in our culture. But we all know from basic experience that life is hard. But we all have this ex- intrinsic belief um, that if something is wrong in my life, then I must have done something wrong. Now look, sin has consequences and it reaps havoc in your life. But... It's not what I'm getting at. It's more like karma. We think if I just make good choices and I just do good things, then things will work out for me. And if I make bad choices and I, mess, and I make mistakes, uh, and then the opposite will yield misery. But here's the, the point I'm making. Jesus' life proves the exact opposite of that. His life was at the center of God's will for all of history. And His public ministry was defined by suffering. And so there's a sense in which, we don't have time to go in this way, but there's a sense in which if our life has not encountered much, if any, suffering, it's kind of hard to know this Jesus. 
Because that's what his life was marked by. And it's actually what he tells people that if they follow him, it's the most sure thing to come into their life. Suffering. But we're also cynics. Therefore, the karmic cynicism, right? Uh, That most of us, when things go wrong in our life, actually our first impulse is not to look in here. Where is our first impulse to look? Who has messed this up, right? Who has messed my life up? Everything would be right in my life or okay in my life if he or she hadn't have broken up with me. If I had just been able to stick it out in that major. If I had just gotten in that fraternity or sorority. You name it, right? This is the point, y'all. The baptism and genealogy that Luke kind of inserts here in the middle of this story shows us that Christianity never teaches that Jesus comes to take all your problems away. Not in this life. That's not what it teaches. It actually, again, was Jesus himself that promised trouble would come our way for following him. And that is Jesus stepping into the reality of our struggle here as he goes out into the wilderness to be tempted. So think about this. He was baptized. Baptism was different, obviously, before his death and resurrection. It was a baptism of repentance. The The only sinless person that's ever lived submits himself to a baptism of repentance. Why? Because he's here to claim sinners to himself. He throws his lot in with sinners. He's down for our struggle, the reality of our struggle. He also has a family tree. The thing about genealogies can be really boring. They like derail your annual Bible reading plans, right? But what does it show about Jesus? He had a family tree. What's a family tree good for? I've heard firewood. Because what is a family tree? It's just a long list of messed up people and how we've probably inherited their messed up mess. He comes physically from a long line of sinners. He has come to enter into our struggle and it's a reality of this life. And he knows it. He knows it. Well, let's move on. What is the heart of this struggle? And I think we see this so clearly in his temptation. The heart of this struggle Jesus knew the reality of our struggle, but he also shows us the heart of our struggle. Because what we see in his temptations, what we see in the heart of his struggle, is actually the heart of all of our struggles. Okay, Jesus emerges from the Jordan River, from his baptism, fresh with the anointing of the Spirit, fresh with the blessing of his Father. And he was going to have to answer, he's going to have to deal with two questions for the rest of his life. Okay, What does it mean to be the Son of God? And what is this Messiah thing going to look like? Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the man, he emerges from the Jordan with this commission, this blessing and anointing by the Spirit and his Father, with those two questions. What does it mean to be the Son of God, and what will this Messiah thing look like? And here's the thing about the temptations. The temptations are Satan's direct attempt to answer those questions for Jesus. That's what Satan's going after. you ever thought about it this way? Look at the temptations. Look at the first one. Satan basically comes and says, look, man. You haven't eaten in 40 days. Your body is like beginning to eat itself now. Your fast is over. Look, you made the rocks. Just go ahead and make it a bread and eat. Because, I mean, God wouldn't want his beloved son to starve. Would he? Look at the second one. Jesus, look, man. You are the son of God. You are the rightful king of all the nations. And not one of them showed up when you were born. Come to me and they will all bow down to you in an instant. Look at the third one. 
Jesus, look, man, you are the son of God. God won't let anything happen to his children. It says so right here in my B-I-B-L-E. You know what? If you jumped off of here and angels kind of like swooped in and like saved you, I bet every single person that saw it would believe in you. Wouldn't they? And again, you think about the temptations. I think this is a fair question. What would have been any real harm in Jesus doing any of these things? Especially like the first one. I mean, he's hungry. Who would have known, right, um, that he made himself some bread? Here it is. This is my suggestion. What Satan was after and what would have been the case if Jesus had done any of these, he would have been using his own power and his own position to meet his own needs. In other words, he would have been serving himself instead of serving us. In other words, he would no longer be identifying with us, the ones who need him. Therefore, he'd no longer be a savior. You see how quickly that could have unraveled. Satan was offering, and I'm not really making a joke, Satan was offering Jesus of Nazareth his best life now. He was trying to get him to not be a servant. He's trying to get him to avoid the cross, avoid the suffering. And this is the most remarkable thing. Think about this. It might be the most convicting thing. It all started with the thought of bread. Can I hear like, like some guys say like, amen, right? It all started with the thought of bread. How is that? How could it go from bread to not being the savior of the world anymore? Actually, I stole this uh, straight from Tim Keller because it's an awesome illustration. But there was a New York Times article uh, sometime back in the past about a movie called Max. And this movie was about the early life of Adolf Hitler. And during the production of this movie, there was actually several Jewish groups Uh, that protested this movie uh, because they feared, um, I guess, neo-Nazism or whatever in kind of a humanizing, sympathetic portrayal of young Adolf Hitler in this movie. And as the director is kind of dealing with those things in an interview, he said that he all of a sudden kind of realized that he'd always thought of Hitler as a monster. But as he began to study his life, what he was seeing is it was actually the daily mundane choices of his life that grew him into one. This is how he puts it. Listen, it hit me. Hitler, who I'd always thought of as a demented monster who wasn't human at all, was really just like us. He wasn't born a monster or spawned a monster. He actually decided to become a monster because he tried becoming an artist and he found that becoming a monster was easier. The movie isn't about Hitler's great crimes. The audience already knows those. This is about his small sins, his emotional cowardice, his relentless self-pity, his envy, his frustration, the way that he collects and nurtures offenses. Hitler, like Osama and Saddam and Milosevic, obliges us by representing an uncomplicated picture of evil. Nobody wakes up one day and slaughters thousands. They make choices one at a time. That's chilling. Here it is. What is the heart of our struggle? And how do we see it in Jesus' struggle? Every day, you and I have choices. Every day, you and I are faced with choices. And every single one of them hinges on the answers to two fundamental questions. 
What does it mean to be a child of God? And what will this Christianity thing look like in my life? What does it mean to be a child of God? And what will this Christian thing look like in my life? I would suggest to you how you in your everyday life answer those two questions is the heart of the struggle of this thing we call life. So whether you realize life is a struggle or not, it's there. Because our lives are filled daily with instances of people at every turn. If you think about it, our, day, our days, our weeks are, feel, are filled with instances daily at every turn of people failing to meet our expectations. People disappointing us. People sinning against us. What am I going to do? How am I going to deal with that person that I know talks about me every time I'm not around? How am I going to deal with parents who say they love me, but they cannot even love each other? How am I going to deal with a resume that lists accolade after accolade after accolade that has not gotten me anything yet? How am I going to deal with grades that should have gotten me a better job or gotten me into the school I really wanted to go to? How am I going to deal with that friend or that sibling who just can't do anything right? When did everything in my life start falling apart? Right? There's that karmic cynicism. Google it. I made it up. Um, Could it have anything to do with this? That at some point along the way, you decided that the world existed to meet your needs. That at some point in your life, you decided that God made everything to revolve around you. And no wonder I look at everything in my life and I can only view view them through the lens of how they failed me. Jesus marches straight out into the wilderness to face that struggle. And what's beautiful about the story is that he tells Satan, and therefore he's telling us, there's a better way. There's a better way. What is that way? Finally, this, redeemed through the struggle. What is the better way? I've got two ways to answer this. There's a practical answer, and then there's a foundational answer. The practical answer is this. Three times, Jesus does the same thing in response to the temptations that he faces. It is written. There's two ways you can go with this, but I want you to think about the profundity of this. That in the face of starvation and Satan himself tempting, Jesus answers every one of Satan's ploys with Scripture. Now, this is the moment where everybody kind of like slunches in their chair and is like, man, I knew it. I don't read the Bible enough. <laughs> like, you all like say that to each other all the time. You all, even though you Instagram the coffee. Anyway, never mind. Um, I've done it too. It's okay. Um, you know, I need to read my Bible more. Mom was right. I promised myself this time I was really going to make it past Leviticus. And it stopped. Look, yes. Yes, 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 yes. We need to read our Bibles more, okay? You're never going to hear me not say that. 
But I want you to think about how remarkable this is, that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of starvation, in the midst of temptation, Jesus says, Satan, you know what? I appreciate it, but I have God's word. And that's why we kind of look at this passage and say, well, of course he did that because he's the son of God. Because that seems so unrealistic to us. That in the face of real struggle and real suffering, that Jesus could be like, no, I'm good. I got the Bible. We're good. Because we either think that's unrealistic or it just makes us feel all sorts of shame. But you've got to think about it. Jesus isn't just throwing verses at the devil. Because look, the devil knows scripture too. He cites it. What is it that Jesus gets that we don't? I forget who I heard this from, but I love it. There's a quote I heard one time that said, Narrative fuels lifestyle. Narrative fuels lifestyle. Meaning, the story that you're living and believing about life fuels the way in which you live. The choices that you make. The actions that you take in life. The narrative that you're believing about life and the world and yourself fuels the decisions you're making and the actions that you're taking in life. So think about Jesus at this point. He's grown up his whole life with his mama telling him that he's the son of God. Scripture confirming it for him that he's the son of God. And what he did was he said, if this story is true, as contained in this book, then it is ultimate reality. That if this story is true, it is the story of life itself. Therefore, when false versions of the story of life present themselves to me, I can identify them for what they are. Why do I keep screwing up? Why do I keep doing this or that that I know is going to bring me shame after shame after shame? Why do I keep... Why do I keep... um, These unreal expectations of what I'm supposed to be in school and what I'm supposed to be in every extracurricular activity that I've piled into my week when I know they're only going to leave me empty and exhausted. It's because you are believing and telling yourself another story than the one that we find and hear in the gospel. Look, memorize scripture, memorize passages, learn the Bible, study the Bible, read other books, do them. But you can do them until you're blue in the face and they will not do a thing until this story has penetrated your very soul. Until you see through all the hazy, all the haze of the false narratives that vie for my heart and attention... That there actually is a story that stands out that is my solid ground. I can do all those things until I'm blue in the face, but unless this story has penetrated my very soul, there is no power in any of them. That's the practical answer. I want to leave you with kind of this more big, big picture foundational answer. Because there's parallels in the story that are rather striking. The 40 days in the wilderness reminiscent of Moses and Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. Uh, Whereas Israel wandered and grumbled the whole time, Jesus is faithful and obedient. But this is what's interesting. You look at all of Jesus' quotes of Scripture, they all come from Deuteronomy 6 through 9. 
If you know anything about the Old Testament, Deuteronomy literally means second law. The book of Deuteronomy is Moses kind of re-giving everything that God had ever instructed him. And he re-preaches it all to the people of Israel before they go into the promised land. And so think about that. Jesus' responses to Satan all come from a law given to men by God. Follow me. So what is Jesus saying? Man shall not live by bread alone. God has told men to worship Him alone. God has told men not to put God to the test. Why is that so profound? Because Jesus could have, in His right mind, and He would have been right, looked at Satan and said, Satan, you're an idiot. I'm God, and you know that I can't do that. But He doesn't say that. What does He do? He puts Himself in the place... Of a man under God's law. (laughs) He deliberately empties himself of the glory and power that he is due. And he puts himself in the place of a man. Because that's what he was. He was a man. That's the clincher of the story. In other words, Jesus is taking the place of sinners in everything he does. This is why it's at the beginning of his ministry. Because what was his ministry going to be? Ultimately, to take the place of sinners. In other words, he's showing us the very essence of the gospel. What does it mean to be a child of God and what will this Christian thing look like? What Jesus is showing us is that that answer will not and cannot be found in anything inside of you. No amount of extra willpower, no amount of showing up and showing out at whatever you want to show up and show out at. (laughs) That was poor English, but you got me. No amount of those things can do anything. Because it has to be in something else. In fact, it has to be in something He did for you. And this is what's most remarkable, because this is what actually makes Jesus the true hero. And it actually, as theologians put it, makes him the new Adam. You notice how it went all the way back to Adam in Jesus' genealogy. Because think about the first Adam who lived in paradise in the midst of abundance. And what did he do? He disobeyed. And he served himself. And he destined himself and all of his part. Posterity to life in the wilderness, apart from God. But what did the second Adam do? This is remarkable. He left paradise, his paradise, by the way. And he came into our wilderness in the midst of our suffering and our destitution and our temptation. And what did he do? He obeyed. And he obeyed even to the point of death. Why? So that we might have life. It kind of makes, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it kind of makes Philippians chapter 2 leap off the page. Let me read it for you. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. doesn't stop there. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. What if that was true? What Luke is telling you tonight is always true. It's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you for her Savior who didn't just kind of come look at what's, what's going on in our lives. But he actually entered into it. And he actually took it on himself. And he did it of his own will. And he didn't have to. Father, we need that story to be real. We need it to be true. More than that, we need for our hearts to be able to believe it. Would you do that for us tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.